Between the kids being home and hosting, everything in our house gets used up in summer. With Instacart, I can save money by stocking up on all my favorite summer brands. I save time by getting everything delivered in as fast as an hour. And I save myself a sink full of dirty dishes by stocking up on paper plates for the annual summer cookout. Save more on summer essentials? Spend more time enjoying summer. Add summer to cart. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst, Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey, everybody. It's Eric here alongside Rod, and it's finally started. Actual basketball action has begun, and we're going to be talking about Grand Valley, the first exhibition game on November 1st. Uh, Before that, I'd like to thank a new sponsor or patron we have for the show, Sean McCown, who is joined through Patreon as one of our patrons. Just a reminder, you can do that and support the show, which our intention is always to leave this without a paywall. And you can go support us at tffinots.com slash support, or you can also just go straightly to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash MSU. T-F-F-I-N-O-T-S. So thanks again to Sean McCown and then other patrons, Dan Raskin, Chad Hickey, Adam Walzak, Doug Robinson, and James Benton. So Rod, actually, we've spent the entire offseason and it's no longer the offseason. I guess technically this is the real season. We've gone through a scrimmage game with Tennessee and this is, I guess, our last action before we start the real, the real stuff uh, here with Grand Valley. Anything before we start talking about this specific game that you think we should address? I think we're all certainly ready for it Um, to start as you and I were just talking about for a few moments before we started uh, recording, you know, given how the football season has gone and we're recording this, obviously the morning after a very uh, unpleasant night in Ann Arbor. Um, So yeah, definitely, definitely time to get it started. And I, and I, I really do feel like, there is reason to be interested and excited about this team. Um, I don't think it's just, you know, um, turning to the next thing that maybe can distract us from a, an unfortunate football season. I really do think that there's, there's reason and, and we're starting, you know, we've seen a couple little data points come in, which don't mean a hell of a lot uh, in the greater scheme of things, but they are there. That, that would suggest that maybe this Michigan State team can be pretty good. I'm fairly confident that we're going to be at least, assuming you know no injuries, that we're going to be at least as good as last year if, and probably a little bit better. And in a Big Ten that's a little bit weaker, I think you know overall we're going to probably be in better position. But well, let's talk about the Grand Valley game. Uh, just one exhibition game this season. Grand Valley's a member of the GLIAC, a, division, a D2 school. Always been pretty good athletically at least the last 20 years or so since I've been in here in West Michigan. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would say it's. Uh, right. They've been looking to move to D one, at least in basketball, right? Yeah, let, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk about that, because um, you're a you're a resident. Or obviously, we don't have a ton of Grand Valley team insights <laughs> here, so let's pad it out. But I do. But I do think it's it's worth a discussion. So, um, I think it was last week, and I honestly, I apologize. I can't remember to the two newspapers as if they care. I can't remember which one it was. The news or the free press had a piece on DJ Stevens and Cornell Mann. Now, everybody listening, I would assume, knows who Dwayne Stevens is, but they might not know who Cornell Mann is, Uh, although we've talked about him a few times here and there over the years. His name has come up. So they're cousins and they played together at Ferndale High School, as a matter of fact. Um, Dwayne Stevens, of course, we all know, played at Michigan State, did a stint as an assistant at Oakland and Marquette, got to a Final Four with Dwayne Wade and company, um, and then a longtime assistant at Michigan State before finally getting his head coaching, uh, his first head coaching job at Western Michigan starting this year. So I'm sure all Spartans are very excited about that for him um, and, and are wishing him great success. 
The coach at Grand Valley, also a new coach this year, is Cornell Mann, his cousin. And Cornell Mann is a guy who's been around the D1 scene also as an assistant for a long time. And he's coached a bunch of places. Most recently, he's done, I think he did the last five years at Missouri. Before that, he's been at places like Oakland, Western, Central, um, Dayton, Iowa State. So he's coached at some interesting places. Also, kind of at least some tangential uh, Michigan State connections, because I believe his stint at Dayton, he was an assistant for Brian Gregory, who was a longtime assistant under Tom Izzo uh, as well. Um, it was an interesting move, because normally a guy who's a D1 assistant looking to become a head coach, as Cornell Mann was, isn't going to take a D2 coaching job, even as a head coach. I mean, that's just not something occasionally you might see that, but you wouldn't expect it necessarily. But I think there were a couple things here in play that probably led to Cornell Mann taking this job at Grand Valley. The first is what you mentioned. It's been a very successful athletic program, football and basketball. You know, most notably, it's where uh, Brian Kelly kind of launched his head football coaching career, but they've also been very good in basketball for a long time. And it's been a very stable program. I'm not sure how many years they've been playing. I didn't look that up, but I did notice that Cornell Mann is only the sixth head coach in Grand Valley state history. So that's, I've got to believe they've been playing. I would think at least 50, 60 years, I would assume. So that's pretty impressive in terms of stability. So you take this job knowing that, all right, the resources are there to compete and win at the level they're at. They've got a tradition of it. You know, they're coming off a 17 and 11 season, not great, but uh, by their standards, but solid. But I think the other thing is what was mentioned in that article on, on he and, and DJ Stevens. And I've heard this before. You living on the West side of the state, I don't know if you're privy to hearing more of this kind of talk, but I, I wanted to discuss it at least for a second. They mentioned that there are persistent rumors, and there have been for a while, that Grand Valley might be looking to move up to D1. I took a look because I I had this sense that Grand Valley was a large school, but I don't know a great deal about it. I'm I'm not from the west side of the state. Um, You know, I'm not around Grand Valley at all. It's the fourth largest school in the state by enrollment. The only ones that are bigger, Michigan State, Michigan, and Wayne State, and and frankly. And because I do know something about Wayne State living in Detroit, um, Wayne State, also a D2 school, I can't ever imagine looking to move up to D1. Um, it's just not that kind of place. It's a it's a commuter school primarily, which I think Grand Valley has been traditionally as well, although my sense is they've tried to change that. Maybe mm-hmm. you know something about that. Um But uh, I don't see Wayne State, for a variety of reasons, ever looking to make that move. But Grand Valley, it would kind of make sense. One, the size of the school being, you know, so they're bigger, just to put it into perspective, they're significantly bigger than all three of the MAC schools. They're bigger than Oakland. They're bigger than U of D. That's all the non-Big Ten D1 schools in the state. Grand Valley has significantly greater student population. So that's the first thing. But it seems to me the second thing is there's a pretty significant opportunity, I would think, if you wanted to create a D1 program, at least in basketball, given that there you have a city the size and a community the size of Grand Rapids, which is growing, as I understand it, and no big school presence on that side of the state. So it makes some sense. And I look at it, you look at some of the other schools that have gone D1 in recent years around the country. And frankly, even if you go back to Oakland, maybe some of our listeners don't realize that I believe Oakland's only been a D1 for 20 some years, not that long in the greater scheme of things. And you look at it and think, well, if Oakland could pull it off, what possible reason would there be that a Grand Valley couldn't? Again, especially considering they sit in a relatively large population center 
the closest D1 program to them would be Western Michigan, which isn't really that close. It seems to make some sense to me. You look, you look at it and you think, well, why could they not look to compete in a league like the summit or, or even the horizon down the line, you know? And, and so I, I think about that and you wonder if Cornell Mann knows more than the rest of us do, because that would make some sense. If you, as a D one assistant looking for a head coaching job, you looked around and you had a D two school. that has been very competitive at that level. And they say to you, Hey, we're thinking we might look to make this move down the line. That's not a bad gig to be the guy who ushers a program into a new level. I totally agree. And I, and I think all your points are, are well made and, and, they really effectively describe the area and the advantages that Grand Valley has. I mean, when we were growing up in Lansing, I don't remember, I don't even think I remember hearing about Grand Valley, except it was sort of on lines of Saginaw Valley, you know, uh, where it was, as you mentioned, a commuter school. It was a very small school. And when I moved back to the when I moved back to Michigan in 2004, I was shocked that Grand Valley was this huge school. It had, it had exploded in the late, in the 90s to, yeah have a really big student population and it draws it's the big like you mentioned it's the biggest public university here on the west side of the state which is growing uh so that and there really even aren't even a whole lot of private colleges on the west side of the state either there's hope and calvin you and, want, you know and there's like right. k college i suppose but for davenport and that's kind of about it and so it it's just outside of grand rapids not too far a little bit allendale yep just out just outside just west of grand rapids and they've had they've ever since I've been here, you know, they've been super successful in football, but always had really solid athletics in everything: volleyball, baseball, basketball. Because I think they're they're able to draw on this very large population this side of the state. Is is there much? I honestly don't know the answer to this. Is there much? Um, I, I know obviously the DeVos family has been extremely mm-hmm. important in development in Grand Rapids. Is there any? involvement from the DeVos family to your knowledge in, in terms of Grand Valley? I don't believe there's a lot of involvement there. However, I would say that there is a lot of industrial support and large uh, companies like Steelcase and, the, and who, okay. who have a lot of, who have a lot of potential of, of supporting athletics. And that's why they've been so successful getting coaches and getting facilities. And I mean, if you look at their facilities they're they are on par with probably, you know, in Eastern Michigan. Uh, and so it has surprised me that they've actually not gone to, to D one, except it, you know, it's an expensive move, obviously. And so it wouldn't surprise me for them to just tip, you know, put their toe in the water and say, we're just going to try women's and men's basketball and see how that goes and then find some conference. Right. And kind of make, and see if it works. I mean, I, I, I would be shocked if it doesn't happen the next couple of years because grand Valley is just so big. Yeah. And, and, and it should be, I, I want to make sure this point is clear, you know, schools that do this, they don't necessarily do it wholesale. So I would not be expecting Grand Valley to move their football program to the D one level. That that's moving your football program. Obviously just the expense of running that is what tends to be a bridge too far for most schools. So I would think if this happens, Grand Valley probably remains where they are in, in terms of football, I would think, but the other sports, you know, the, the bar is much, much lower to be able to compete. And, you know, I would expect now when, when you look at, uh, other D one programs in the state, for example, Oakland and U of D, they don't have football teams, so they don't even bother to compete. I think about a school like, um, schools like Georgetown. And I think Villanova, some of the East coast Catholic schools, do have football programs, but they compete at division two or division three. So I, that would seem to be the model for me for grand Valley. If they were going to do this is you do it in the sports where the, the bar is significantly lower to clear in terms of being able to compete. But anyway, I, I thought it was an interesting uh, side note for this game because it, it makes more sense to me why a guy like Cornell Mann would want to take the job, you know, in his home state with a, a, at a place that's been competitive. Yes. But maybe with an opportunity to do something different. Yeah. I think, I think absolutely that, that makes a lot of sense. And 
you've seen a lot of success for coaches who've left. You mentioned Brian Kelly. I think Mark Cubitt left as well. And they've, they've had success in other sports moving on into D1 level. So, you know, at a minimum, it's going to be a place where if you do well, it, you're going to be noticed and have an opportunity to, to coach elsewhere. Right. I mean, at, you know, if nothing happens as far as moving to D1. Right. Um, well, let's talk about the Lakers. We They did play one exhibition game as far as we know. They played Eastern Michigan. We saw, you might have seen some highlights out there with Monty Bates dunking on some people. Uh, they were last season, they were 17-11, 11-9 in the conference. But it's pretty much a rebuild from last year. They lost their top five scores from last season. They uh, returned uh, Chinedu Kingsley Akunu. Rakanu is a 6-7 grad transfer from Northern Illinois. He's He led the... Lakers against uh, Eastern Michigan with 11-6. I do find it funny that their top secret game was not at all top secret, <laughs> but Michigan State, Tennessee is like, you know, locked down and we only get little dribbles of things coming out, right? <laughs> little leaks. It wasn't a scrimmage. It was actually an exhibition. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Which is, uh, you know, and, and it's worth noting for listeners, the differences in those two things are one, exhibitions tend to be available to the public to view, which the game at Eastern Michigan was for Grand Valley. Uh, you know, fans were able to get in and watch. And two, they're actually played as real games. This is why coaches really like the secret, the quote unquote secret scrimmages, in part because they get an opportunity to do some things outside of a pure game context. So they do situational stuff. Sometimes I'll give you an example because Izzo spoke about this MSU's uh, scrimmage against Tennessee. They played a full 40 minute game, but then they played 10 extra minutes where they got the freshmen, both sides, some more time because those guys hadn't played as much, for example, in the, in the game portion. So right. for example, and this might explain that photo we yeah, got Kohler of and Jackson Kohler Cooper, yeah. and Carson Cooper together. Um, because I didn't realize this, we were mentioning that, that they had done that. Izzo mentioned that Jackson Kohler only played, I think, 10 minutes in the actual game. So they wanted to get him a little more work. Uh, you can't do that in an exhibition because yeah. it's set up as a real game, you know, 40 minutes to 20 minute halves and, you know, seven fouls put you in the penalty and all that stuff. Uh, scrimmages sometimes are played under those conditions and sometimes they're not. So coaches want that to be much more akin to a practice just with an opponent, you know, and they might do some things differently than they would in a game in terms of uh, lineup combinations, situate working on situational stuff, all of that. Um, so that that's the difference between the two. Yeah, it's funny because I was watching those clips and it didn't occur to me that that was an exhibition game because there was nobody in the stands. Like, I don't, all those clips, I I don't think I saw in a single person. Maybe yeah. they were somewhere. Maybe there were like one or two. I guess you would expect, you know, it's, it's Eastern Michigan, right? And that's the difference. <laughs> well, here here's what's funny about it. I vividly remember, uh, I guess it was four years ago now, being in that same building for Amani Bates' first high school game. And the crowd at that game was bigger than for the Grand Valley exhibition, which <laughs> says a lot of things about Amani, yeah. about you know, Eastern yeah. Michigan's drawing power, a lot of that. But it was a pretty good crowd for a high school game that day. Um, not so much for this exhibition. The one other thing about the exhibition games, of course, it, that you can experiment, you can fool around as a coach. And I mean, Izzo certainly does that the preseason with against lesser competition, but even more so during the exhibition games. But to your point, it is a game. And if Michigan State were to lose, let's say, it wouldn't count, but it would count, right? And so it would be huge sure. news. It'd be, it'd be a huge story. Didn't they they uh, lost to Grand Valley in one of these things years ago. Um, okay, yeah. Okay. Was it uh, maybe maybe Drew Neitzel's junior year? It was a long time ago. I think you're right, yeah. but it was, yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. But, yeah, and, and it becomes a story, and that's just something you want to avoid, right? Right, Exactly. And, and, you know, and it's worth noting, since we're, we're talking about it, Izzo has mentioned that because MSU is going to hit the ground running, <laughs> to say the least, in terms of their schedule in November and December, um, his plan, according to him, for this exhibition game and for the Northern Arizona game, the season opener, 
uh, is to play them pretty much straight. In other words, he's going to, he's not going to play around the way we might normally see for short stints here and there with different lineup combinations or, you know, looking for opportunities to get guys who are deeper on the bench, some minutes, he's going to play these things straight because they need to be as sharp as they possibly can be as early as they possibly can be. At least that's what he said. Well, it makes sense too, because if you look at in the past with scheduling in the non-conference, the first game is always a champions classic. There's never been a game outside the exhibition games beforehand. So you have no opportunity to sort of make sure your lineups the way it should be and make it some continuity in play. Whereas now you actually are afforded that opportunity. So hopefully you're coming a little bit crisper than you ordinarily were in those games. And you don't want to kind of squander that at this point. I imagine you right. want to try and maximize right. your opportunity to win when you get those right. those games. Of course, Champions Classic is also still not the first game <laughs> since playing aircraft yeah. here before that. Right. Yeah, two two games before the Air, before the Champions Classic this year. Uh, the only other thing is that, you know, I guess you look at that game, they gave up 53% shooting to Eastern. I don't know what kind of team Eastern is, but I think they're not great. A lot of, lot of talent, actually. They've got, they've got, you know, they're, they're in a new era. Stan Heath, the former Michigan State assistant, is uh, in his first year there. And they've actually got an interesting team. I don't know that I would be picking them to win anything, but uh, depending upon how you feel about Imani Bates, it's worth noting he had 27 points against Grand Valley, shot well. I think he was four for 10 from three, um, over 50% overall. As you said, there were some highlights of him dunking. So he played very, very well. But they've got some other guys that I, some guys from in the state of Michigan, they've got a freshman guard, Orlando Lovejoy, that uh, point guard that I liked a lot in high school. Um, thought he might uh, mature into a Big Ten level player, but that didn't quite happen. But still, talented kid. He's got some guys who can play, but I, who knows what that'll amount to. Um, in terms of a record and a finish in the Mac or any of that. Sure. Well, and, and I saw a couple of those players play the night I went on Mon to Moneyball. Um, I think there were some, some big guys. They were actually pretty good. They, they, they had no trouble handling Sissoko is, is what I recall, but that's yeah. about the only thing I re remember about that game in particular, but those players. Well, let's talk about the game. I mean, itself and we'll just go over the, the five keys to the game. Number one, the not so shocking one is health. And to not get injured, have any problems? Uh, look, it's it's always the number one deal in these games, right? You you just want to come out of any game that doesn't mean anything healthy. And you know, case in point, last year in the exhibition, people may remember Jason Whitens got out there, was only on the court for a couple minutes, but boy, he made his presence felt. He was flying around, diving after loose balls, you know, doing the things that I figured he would do which I think they could have used. Um, but then he got hurt, missed the entire season. So it can happen. And, you know, Michigan State already has had an injury in the preseason to Jaden Akins. I, based on the way Izzo has talked, I don't think we're likely to see Jaden. I'm hoping we see him against Northern Arizona. Izzo said he's got to practice, like I think he said, five straight days. For them to feel comfortable playing him and uh i don't know that he will have done that yet uh, by the time this game rolls around and even if he has i wouldn't be surprised to see them be cautious and kind of let him let him sit uh one more one more time around uh, but you don't want anybody else to get hurt absolutely yeah i would not i would be I would be very surprised if Aikens plays. I think you, and I think he'll play spot minutes in, at Northern Arizona, uh, just depending on how he's feeling. That's another week away too. So, uh, number two would be defensive rebounding. Yeah, this is to me. I mean, other people will focus on, of course, the eternal issue of turnovers, and you know, <laughs> generally how play is is working out among the three guys they've got at the five spot and all that. To me, the biggest issue for this team is right here it's defensive rebounding because it's been a problem really the last two years it's been exacerbated it's been a problem longer than that but really bad the last two years and again 
to illustrate the point, Izzo mentioned when he was talking about what happened at Tennessee, and just to remind people, or if you if you hadn't listened to our earlier episode, the word is that uh, Michigan State went down to Tennessee in that scrimmage, and in the 40-minute game, which was played pretty much straight, as I understand it, Michigan State lost a close one. Tennessee's a very good team. Um, for what it's worth, after that, they went and played a um, – televised quote-unquote scrimmage although again it was played as a real game against gonzaga and waxed gonzaga by 19 just blew them out um so tennessee's really good the fact that michigan state was very competitive with them should make people at least it's an optimistic data point i won't say it's any more than that um because there's a lot of lot of ways you could choose to look at that but in any event one of the things Izzo mentioned that was very disappointing to him in that game was twice they had circumstances where Tennessee missed a free throw. Michigan State didn't block out well enough. Tennessee got offensive rebounds and kicked it out for made threes off a missed free throw twice. In a close game, which this apparently was, that's the difference. I mean, if you yeah. go from possession should be over to they hit a three and you let that happen twice in a, in a tight game. And most, you know, we know this most big 10 games or a lot of big 10 games, at least are going to be played in a range where a six point swing is massive. Yeah. Just massive. And, and that's been a problem. We go back to the NCAA tournament game yeah, against UCLA. UCLA two years yeah. ago. Right failing to block out on free throws. Now that's a, a special situation where it should never happen. I'm talking about something even broader than that though. I'm talking about just possession of possession, the ability to force a missed shot by the opponent and end the possession. It's critical for two main reasons. First of all, makes it tougher for the other guys to score if they don't have the ball, right? They miss, <laughs> yeah. they miss a shot. You get the rebound. They can't score. But the second thing is, and it's going to run in conjunction with one of our other points of emphasis here, talking about the keys. If Michigan State can't get clean defensive rebounds, it becomes much tougher for them to run, which is what they want to do offensively. And I would argue this team in particular really should be looking to run as much as they can because they, they're a, a smaller team in some ways. I don't know that they have, other than perhaps Jaden Akins, a knockout athlete, but they've. this is a team that should be able to run the break very, very well. But they got to get into the break for that to matter. And the way you get into the break, in large part, is down to your defensive rebounding. So they've got to be better. Uh, Grand Valley is not a huge team. They've got a few guys. I know they have a 6'11 kid on the roster. I'm not sure how much he's playing. Uh, they've got another 6'9 guy. So they, it's not like they're running a team of 6'3 guys out there. But we've seen in these kind of games in the past, even good Michigan State rebounding teams have struggled sometimes with undersized opponents. So put, file this in the establishing good habits folder. Uh Regardless of the size of the opponent, Michigan State has to start reestablishing that as a program staple, that they rebound the ball at both ends and they end possessions when the opponent misses a shot. So that's more than just down to the fours and the fives. Yeah, Joey Hauser, Malik Call, Matty Sissoko, Jackson Kohler, Carson Cooper, those guys have a job to do. But I've been saying this for years. I think where Michigan State's really been deficient recently has been the rebounding job done by the perimeter group, by the wings. Those guys have got to be better. So we're talking about, you know, Pierre Brooks, Jaden Akins when he's healthy, um, Tyson Walker, even though he's only six feet tall, uh, Trey Holloman, Jason Whitens, if he plays. Um, these are the guys who really need to step up in my mind and just be better than what we've had in the recent past from MSU. I feel like this game would be a good example. You know, you're, you look at ways to figure out where your team is. You're obviously, you're playing against 
which should be a significantly inferior competition from what you're going to be facing most of the season. However, you know, if you struggle rebounding against a team like Grand Valley, it's going to be a data point like, well, this is really concerning. Uh, you know, obviously you, do, you out-rebounded by 20. It, does, it may not mean anything, except that's right. what you, should, you would expect to do. But if you struggle, then I think that's something you hopefully they could use it, take it back and uh, reemphasize it in practice. But I think that would be probably more concerning than anything uh, from yep. a rebounding standpoint. Uh, so number three would be deep shooting. Michigan State was an elite shooting, three-point shooting team last season. And so the question is, you know, can you replicate that? Yeah, and again, it's only one game that nobody saw. But the word is Michigan State shot better than 50% from three on a pretty high volume against Tennessee. So, again, just one tiny, tiny data point. But I think there's reason to believe that this could be another very good shooting team for Michigan State. Now, it's true. They lost some guys from last year who shot the ball well. Um, Gabe Brown was, I think, a 38% shooter from three on relatively high volume. Marcus Bainham, especially the latter half of the year, really picked it up and was a presence in that way. Max Christie took a lot of them, wasn't as efficient, but you know, still wasn't a disaster. It was like a 32% shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, so they lost some guys, but they've also got some guys coming back. Both Tyson Walker and Malik Hall had outstanding years shooting the three last year. In fact, the only negative you could say about either one of them is that they didn't take enough of them. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, Joey Hauser, I think ended up with a pretty good year shooting, but the second half of the season, he was way better than pretty good. Yeah. So that could continue. So they've got those three guys that are, you know, more or less proven. But I think there are other guys who could come into the mix here and help. Um, anybody who saw Moneyball knows that Pierre Brooks was taking ungodly amounts of threes and hitting a lot of them. And I'm not surprised by that. He was, he improved as a shooter over the course of his high school career, but toward the end of it was actually pretty good. And it looks like he's continued to get even better at Michigan state. He apparently had a good game shooting the three against Tennessee from what I've heard. Um, I don't know where it's fair to expect him to slot in if you're trying to predict percentages, but I think he can be a threat. Trey Holloman, I think you said you saw better shooting out of him in Moneyball than you'd expected, right? Yeah, he looked really good. Yeah, and and that was something that was supposed to be a weakness. Um, if he can even be like a mid-30s guy, that's that's a big threat to have out there. Um, Jaden Akins, when he's back, you know, again, I think he ended up 38% from three as a freshman. I would expect him to shoot a much higher volume this year. We'll see what that means in terms of his efficiency, but I think he can be a very good shooter. And then AJ Hogard, you know, you're just hoping for some improvement. If you get even 30% out of him, I think you'd take that run. Um, and then even among the big men, you know, Jackson Kohler, um, Izzo talked about it. I think he said, how did he term it? <laughs> he has I think a he yellow said light, he's got a I think. flashy, flashy yellow. yellow. <laughs> yeah. But Jackson Kohler could shoot. I mean, make no mistake, he he can shoot the three. Now, how much he's going to play, how many opportunities for that he'll have remains to be seen. But look, it, we've seen this many, many times at Michigan State over the years. If you've got a big man that you can use in the pick-and-roll game and have him as a pick-and-pop threat, that makes a big difference. So Michigan State's going to do a lot of that with Joey Hauser this year and, and maybe some with Malik Hall too, but Jackson Kohler's another guy who can help. So you, you add all this up, there are a lot of guys on that roster who appear to be legitimate shooting threats. And, you know, I do. they were so good as a team shooting the three last year that it is fair to wonder, well, can they repeat that? You know, that is a high bar, but I... I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that they can, you know, Absolutely. We'll, we'll have to see, but it's a, it's a big deal that this Michigan state team needs to do that. Well, I think, I think if they really struggle as a team shooting the three, 
you know, it, it could be hard scoring as much as they're going to need to. Yeah, well, I know Jack's colors from out west, so I don't know if he's. They have flashing yellow lights out there. I know I dated a girl from Arizona, and she wasn't sure what to do with the flashing yellow lights. She would like kind of pause all the time, right. so she. So hopefully he knows what that means. Uh, and I do. I'm actually very optimistic because we had three shooters, really. You know, Hauser Hall and Walker, who are basically forty percent plus three point shooters. You, yeah. And they, it didn't look like they were lucky. You know, it, it looked like it was real. And so I would expect them oh, all yeah. to do that well. And then you have Aikens, who's hovering 40. I mean, you could almost you, – you could talk yourself into thinking this is going to be a better three-point shooting team than last year. And I think it wouldn't be – you wouldn't be crazy, which, is, which would be amazing. It's possible because, you know, Max Christie shot a high volume and didn't really – wasn't very efficient. So if you're replacing that with better efficiency, maybe even distributed over several guys, you might be better, you know. Some of those guys – I mean, look – Tyson Walker was plus 50% from three for most of the season. I think Malik Hall was as well. They yeah. both had a little down tick late that forced them to finish a little under 50%. But those guys shot the ball really, really well. Now, that said, I would glad if you told me Tyson Walker was going to tick down to being only a 40% shooter, <laughs> but he's going to take you know, six threes a game as opposed to whatever he averaged last year, which is probably more like three. I'd take it. You yeah. know, you're going to be better off. You want higher volume from guys who can shoot it. And that's a very common thing, you know, some, and, and sometimes I think, uh, more casual fans don't realize it that, yeah, you want guys shooting a high percentage, but there is a point where a high percentage might actually be reflective of something negative because it might mean that that guy is being maybe a little bit too selective. You need, ultimately you need production, right? You need balls to go through the basket. And if a guy isn't taking enough shots, that's a negative. So you hope for greater volume. It's also worth mentioning, by the way, um, regarding Malik Hall, supposedly and again i've i've heard this i think they mentioned it on uh the field of 68 podcast um supposedly malik hall had 25 against tennessee and and hit a bunch of threes which would be really good news if that's something that carries forward um how many times have we talked about malik hall you know, in one game imposing himself and looking like an all big 10 player and the next time out being more or less invisible, this team can't afford that. They need to be better. They need Malik call to be consistently assertive. Um, and that includes taking threes. So then if we go to number four, key of the game transition game, obviously Michigan State's transition game is looks better at the non-conference and then at the NCAA tournament right. afterwards too, where you have teams that aren't it's familiar or yeah, I guess it's familiar. You think there's tape, you'd know how you're, what the team's like, but maybe it's just, um, you're just not used to the speed and the, that you can't see it on tape, sort of how fast to get it out of the basket, up the court. It is a, I mean, look, I, neither one of us has coached a division one game. So take this with a grain <laughs> of salt. But my, my sense is that Michigan state's break is one of those things that is very, very difficult to fully prepare for unless you've seen it. And that's why Big Ten teams do a much better job, relatively speaking, in containing it because they see it year in, year out. And so they're able to get, when they say to their guys, look, even off a made basket, you don't have time to pose for the camera. You got to fly <laughs> back down the floor because they're going to push it. You could say that to your players, but unless they've experienced it and felt what it actually is like, I could see where it would be harder to get that message across. And we've seen it for so many years that you just, at this point, you just have to accept it as truth that generally speaking, Michigan state's going to have a lot more success running against teams. They don't play regularly. And yeah. so when you look at this non-conference gauntlet, and again, just to refresh people's memories, you're going to see, Gonzaga, you're going to see Kentucky, you're going to see Villanova, you're going to see Notre Dame, who expects to be improved. Uh, you're going to see 
several Alabama. teams, starting with Alabama in the Phil Knight event in, in Portland. This is a tough run of games, no question. If Michigan State is going to thrive or even survive it, I think it's hard to imagine them having a lot of success against those opponents unless they're running well. This is this is the time where you want to see that transition game really kicking into gear. And I you know, I have questions. I wonder about guys like uh, Tyson Walker and Malik Hall who haven't really played a ton of wing in their careers. And a guy like Pierre Brooks, who's going to be playing a larger role than he has in the past. And he really wasn't a pure wing in high school. And he didn't play enough last year to really have a feel for it. You know, at Michigan State, wings have a particular role to play on the break. and They have lanes that they're, you know, that's assigned stuff. That is, the, people may think it's playground. It's far from it. That is scripted. That is something that they work on. Spacing. How much how much space you've got between you and the sideline, you and the ball, which hopefully is in the middle of the floor. You know, all of that is very, very critical. And when you're talking about guys that haven't been doing it for two years, three years, well, it, it's fair to wonder how efficient, how effective are they going to be, especially early in the season. So we'll we'll see how that all looks. But I do think getting the transition game going is going to be really important to making this non-conference any kind of even you know mitigated success. And I think to your point about people learning new roles or at least getting used to them with the different players in the court. We're going to have to expect a lot of turnovers again early in the season like we usually do. And in the, I imagine, high teens to 20 sometimes for a couple of these games, especially against more athletic teams, right? And, yeah, and and that was one of the things Izzo mentioned in the second half against Tennessee. He said the, the things that bothered him were the turnovers, um, second half defense after he felt they were very good in the first half, and then some defensive rebounding lapses. So turnovers was in that list. And you're right. That's just, you know, I, I will say one thing, one advantage, and this was something I think Graham Couch mentioned in our, uh, our discussion with him the other day, and I think it's true. If, if you are a believer, as, as I am, that a significant reason for Michigan State's turnover problems year in, year out involves the size of the rotation and by the way, don't take that to mean that I think they should have done something different. I'm, I'm pretty okay with Tom Izzo's track record using, you know, playing 10 guys, 11 guys, sometimes even regularly. I'm okay with that. Uh, but one of the, one of the knock on effects from doing that is you tend to have greater turnovers, a greater number of turnovers. And the reason is, is pretty simple. When you have guys playing in different unfamiliar combinations um, or they're not playing with the same guys with a lot of frequency, it stands to reason that you may have more mistakes. It's it's to me, it's as good an explanation as anything else for why we see this consistently. I'll remind people last year, one of the real maybe surprising things to many people in the big 10 last season was for all their other faults. The one thing that Minnesota did incredibly well was minimize turnovers. You know, on the surface, you looked at it and said, well, they've got all new guys. You know, they brought in transfers from everywhere. You know, these guys had never played together until the summer before the season. How can they be so good? Well, despite that lack of familiarity at the outset, the fact is, Minnesota played an incredibly tight rotation. There were lots of times where they only they only played really one guy, substantial minutes off the bench. So those guys got used to playing together as a unit in combination with each other. And I think that had a ton to do with why they didn't make many mistakes. Bringing it back around to this Michigan State team, if you believe that they're going to have a tighter rotation 
than they normally do. I'm not sure how tight it's actually going to be. You, you mentioned something in that Graham couch discussion as well, that you you look at it and and on the surface, Michigan state probably should be playing at least nine guys when healthy. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, That's still a pretty big rotation. Oh yeah. But, But if you buy that, it's going to be tighter than it has been in recent years to some extent, then perhaps we will see an improvement in that area. I don't know. Uh, the, the, the flip to that or the counter to that might be what you were just getting at, which is, yeah, that's true, but they've also got some guys in different roles than they've been in in the past, and it's fair to expect that, that there will be a learning curve there. And I think, you know, from an analytics standpoint, I mean, it, in some ways the game comes down to numbers, obviously, and so you have to score more than your opponent, obviously, and you have to be more efficient at offense. And your offensive efficiency is dependent on how many times you actually get a shot up and what percentage you yep. make them. Well, if you obviously turn the ball over, you don't ever get a shot up. And so you're, you're at zero, right? You can't, cause you don't score right. those during those opportunities. And so you always have to, it, it is, it is frustrating to watch the turnovers because you think that you know, they shouldn't happen. Uh, you should be more careful of the ball. But if you are, if you're turning the ball over at a higher percentage than other teams, but when you Make when you put up a shot, you're getting high percentage shots because maybe during the break you're running more, and so actually, the way it works out is that you're more efficient even though with the turnovers, right? We've seen that when you look at the analytics of say other teams like Wisconsin, they have they may never turn the ball over, but they still may not be that efficient scoring because they're poor shooting team or maybe they're you know, and so everything's got trade offs, and I think you you just need to recognize that, and and you can absolutely be upset by turnovers and you know dumb ones where guys like step out of bounds, ones that are like unforced. But you also have to recognize that ultimately you just have to be able to you know, outscore your opponent. And so <laughs> there may be advantages by the way you're playing that make you more pro to turnovers, but still is beneficial to you in the end run. You just said one of, one of the most important things in life, in my opinion, <laughs> and it is something that without, without going off on tangents here, I think um, the last, if anything, the last, you know, two, three years should have taught us is that life really can be boiled down in some ways to a series of trade-offs. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And, and I think that um, in basketball terms, you're absolutely right. Tom Izzo clearly long, long ago made his peace with the idea that Michigan state would commit more turnovers than a lot of other top programs would. But he didn't do that because he doesn't work on it. And he didn't do that because he just doesn't care. It's a conscious decision because to get some of the things he wants, primarily fresh bodies, he wants fresh bodies because he wants to be able to outrun teams he thinks it makes a difference for his teams in terms of their ability to rebound. And I think over the years, offensively, that's definitely been the case, you know, and that's interrelated to turnovers. You can have a turnover problem, but if you're also consistently getting second shot opportunities, it mitigates the the issue. It balances out because the bottom line is simply how many chances do you get to score? Right. Right. So you might be giving some up with turnovers, but you may be gaining some with second and third shot opportunities. It might not matter as much. Uh, He also wants fresh bodies because he believes it helps him defensively. So you have to add in all of these things. And he long ago decided he would rather have a large rotation. Some coaches don't believe in that and they succeed. That's fine. You know, uh, there are different ways to skin a cat. But Tom Izzo's approach is he wants to play a lot of people because he thinks it helps him on balance. But one of the negatives is it's probably going to result in more mistakes. That's just something you have to live with. It may just be an exhibition game, but you're getting some basketball and life philosophy during this show. So I hope everyone appreciates it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, gonna... but, seri- but seriously, that is something that I think – as I say, the last the last three years, especially, really should have drilled home to anybody who wasn't aware of it before. You make decisions in life because you believe that on balance, 
it's going to be a positive result for you. But that does not mean that everything, every aspect of it is going to be positive. You have to accept that when you do A, B might also happen, which is not something you like. It's right. And obviously it's just you can't be doing C when you're doing right. A, right? That's yeah. just, that's just <laughs> life. And it's exactly. true in basketball as well. So the number five key to the game are the number fives. So obviously, you know, we had that positive development, we think, of Maddie Soka playing 27 minutes with just a foul against Tennessee. The downside of that is not like he only had a few rebounds. So I guess, you know, that'll be the question, right? That's the interesting thing. So we, I think we talked about that, right, on our podcast, yeah. that the field of 68 said, oh, Mati Sissoko played 27 minutes, but he only had one point. He only had uh, five rebounds. That sounds uh, encouraging in the fact that he played 27 minutes, but the counting stats, at least, were not very much. He said, well, 27 minutes, he only gets five rebounds. That's not great. Tom Izzo, when he talked about the exhibition, he didn't get into specifics other than he seemed to confirm the scoring because he said one disappointing thing was they didn't get the ball to Mati enough. Um, so that would track. But uh, he was pretty glowing in his assessment of the way Mati Sissoko played. One thing that I mentioned somewhere on a message board, I don't know whether it was ours or the Spartan Mag board, was the one thing you didn't get in that field of 68 podcast, which they would have no way of knowing is that I would want to know when trying to assess the way he played is how did he defend? Was he good defensively? If he was good defensively, fine. I could live yeah, with those right. counting stats. You know, if he was effective there um, and it sounds like he must've been, because I don't think, I don't think Izzo would be positive about the way he played if he wasn't. So it seems pretty clear from everything Izzo has said and from these little scraps of semi-information, we'll call it, uh, that we're, that we're <laughs> getting. Um, do not expect the, the five position to be split kind of evenly, not at the outset of the season. And, and actually, based on everything that I've heard, you know, that stuff. And then, you know, occasional discussion here and there with people who see more than I do um, in terms of what's going on in practice. I think, you know, Graham, I think Graham did a great job the other day, but the one thing he said that I, and I don't think I registered a disagreement on the podcast, uh, but I will disagree with now. I think he said he figured by game seven, Jackson Kohler would be starting. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. It, it might happen at some point this season, maybe, but my sense is Izzo believes that Mati Sissoko is significantly ahead on the defensive end. And he also seems to think that he's improved a lot offensively. So it's not like, I don't get the sense he feels like he's trading, that he's making one of those trade-offs, right? And say, well, I know Mati can't score, but you know, I got to have his defense, so I'll live with that. I don't get that sense in listening to him talk. I think he thinks that, that Mahdi can score. And I, I think if Mahdi's playing that many minutes and he's changed the way he plays, you know, positively, why can't he pick up occasional buckets here or there in transition or off putbacks? or off a dump off in the lane when, you know, Hogard or Walker gets penetration. I mean, if you're big and you're around the basket and you play a lot of minutes, there's usually going to be a few opportunities to score. So yeah. I don't find that hard to believe that he would, you know, he supposedly had a, an internal scrimmage they played the other day where I think he went nine for 10 from the floor. Uh, Izzo mentioned. So I think right now my expectation is, Mati Sissoko is going to clearly be the starting five, assuming that he's able to stay out of foul trouble. You know, if they, if they've truly conquered that problem, that's what I think we're going to see. And I think it's encouraging too, that he played 27 minutes. Yeah. Not so much that he played without fouls, but that he had the endurance to, he was able to that stay too. out there for someone who hasn't played much. Right. That too. What's, when's the last time Michigan state, you would, you would probably have to go back to Xavier Tillman to find uh, a big man 
I don't think we saw it over the last two years where no, one of sure their not. fives played that many minutes. Not even close, no. Because you're you must be playing ten minutes stretches at a time at twenty seven minutes. I mean, you're you're probably yeah. playing through a couple of four under four breaks. You know, we were. I was doing cartwheels last year. You know, when uh, <laughs> Bainham had the occasional game where he played like twenty three or twenty four, and that didn't yeah. happen that often. So yeah, it's it, that's what I expect based on everything we've heard. Now we have to see how effective that is. It could be that that's what they roll out there with, and it's not working. The word on Jackson Kohler is he continues to be incredibly effective offensively. I've said it here before. I keep saying it. I think he is as good an offensive prospect at the five as they brought in since Zach Randolph, just in terms of his pure ability to score. And he's, he's got some of that post game, but he's also, as we just talked about, He's also got the ability to step away from the basket and do damage too. So this is a guy who has a world of potential offensively, but we know the deal by now. If you can't check, you can't play at Michigan state. That's uh, again, going back to the Graham uh, discussion, he seemed to be wondering and I, and I got the sense almost rooting for the idea that, Izzo was going to shift his philosophy some this year and, and go, go to the, the, uh, Fran McCaffrey, we're just going to outscore you (laughs) sort of thing, at least at the five, at least in that position. I, I need to see that. I need to see that happen to believe it because it just is so out of character. And again, if, if Sissoko had not, or let's say has not, because we haven't seen it ourselves. If he has not made sufficient strides, Izzo might not have a choice but to go that way. But the sense I'm getting is he believes he absolutely has a better option in terms of what he wants in totality. And so that that probably is going to mean that Jackson Kohler is going to be, you know, more like a 10, 12, 13 minute a night guy, at least to start the season. The nice thing is you're going to have someone who probably is going to be able to provide some decent minutes and provide the different change of pace for, uh, for you. And, and even then with Cooper too, throwing in there, I, you know, if Maddie has a bad night or whatever, you, you still have options. And I think, I feel like last season we didn't have a lot of options. I know we had marble who come in. Um, but you know, when they were both in trouble, it was, uh, it was not good. <laughs> so what's interesting about it to me is normally when, and this could be the way it plays out. Normally, when a team goes to its backup, you're usually talking about a guy who isn't as good offensively as the guy he's replacing, right? Because across across the spectrum of basketball at all levels, generally your best players are your best scorers. They're just your mm-hmm. most talented guys, right? That's usually how it plays out. Michigan State will be in a kind of a unique position in that their backup five man truly. And I don't I mean, look, it's got to be proven on the court, but I don't think it's a stretch. I think I'd be very conservative if I say I think Jackson Kohler might be one of the five best pure offensive big men in the Big Ten this year. I don't think that's a stretch. I mean, there are other guys, you know, a couple of these goons that other teams are rolling out that because of their size <laughs> but but just in terms of pure ability to score on anybody i don't think that's crazy we remember he has to prove it but i think there's a possibility that we would look back at it and say yeah he was one of the top he might be the best that's not out of the range of possibility just in terms of pure offensive tools if that's your backup and remember backups are oftentimes going up against other backups. Exactly. That's usually the way it goes. I think I said this in our season preview. It would not surprise me if Jackson Kohler ended the season maybe playing, I think I might have said 15 minutes a game. So let's let's go with that. 15 minutes a game, but averaging eight or nine points a game, which would be very productive on a per-minute basis. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we see that. And so... That's going to be an interesting dynamic. 
where MSU goes to its bench and actually gets better offensively. Yeah. And then it certainly makes it, it makes it interesting when you look at late game situations, you know, what, what team do you have on the floor? Cause the assumption really has always been, it's going to be Hall and Hauser with Hauser playing the five at the, you know, if you have to be your best team on the floor at the, at the end of the game with like a minute to go, well, maybe now you, you know, it, it may just be situational. Like we need defense for this situation because we're up four. maybe we need some scoring. So then you put Kohler in or Hauser. I, it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see what happens that game. It may just be a game time decision too. Like, you know, how the game is feeling. I think that was a, a that's a really good point. And it's, um, Again, I keep referring back to our, our discussion with Graham because I think we touched on a lot of really good stuff. One thing he said that I do agree with, and maybe we haven't even emphasized as much as we should, is you could look at this Michigan State team and see that potentially one of its strengths may be the versatility within the roster. And that, that goes a couple different ways. There's a couple different meanings. One is that you've got some guys that can do a variety of different things, but I actually don't think this isn't a team to me that's filled with a ton of Jack of all trades. I mean, they've got some guys that can do different things, but you know what I mean? There's, there's not a, there's not a lot of Steve Smith's running around out there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But what it does have is it's got a lot of different types of players and that gets to what you're talking about. You could you can definitely see defense for offense substituting going on. And and you're right. I think the assumption it was something Graham talked about. It's something other people have talked about. That well, when it's crunch time in a tight game, you kind of expect Michigan State to roll with um, Hauser at the five, Hall at the four. And, uh, and then maybe, you know, some combination of uh, maybe Aikens, Walker, and Hogarth on the perimeter, right? And yeah. that sounds good. But who's to say that in a given circumstance, you might not say, well, Jackson Kohler's a better option. And then we keep Joey at the four and we keep Malik at the three. Uh, you know, it, it, depending yeah, upon oh, the sure. opponent, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with, let's say you're dealing with um, – I don't know with Michigan and you got to worry about that big gump that they've got at center. <laughs> you might want to have one more guy with a little bit of size out there just to make sure that you're able to get a defensive rebound, you know? And at the same time, if Jackson Kohler proves capable of stretching defenses, you know, if he's able to roll out there early in the season and stick a few jumpers, well, you might still be able to get that mismatch effect with a statue like Dickinson without having to sacrifice as much size, without going super small. You know what I mean? There, there are lots of potential options you could see for Michigan being available for Michigan State, depending upon how guys progress and how things. Are, you know, we're not saying any of that is a is a definite, but you don't have to squint very hard to see it as 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 this team having the potential to do those types of things so yeah it's gonna look early in the season and i think that starts in this game because again if you believe Izzo, he's gonna try to play this one pretty straight because he thinks he has to i think it's gonna be very interesting to see the minute allocation and how the rotation goes you know so the the questions would be primarily i think how much do Mati and kohler play you know, vis-a-vis each other. And then are we seeing much at all out of Carson Cooper? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I heard Izzo say it, and and it's the same thing we were talking about with Graham. Izzo is talking about Carson Cooper as a legitimate, solid defensive option right now. Not, oh, he's got the potential in a couple years. He's talking about it right now. And that, that to me, more than anything else, is a tell that Carson Cooper is going to have a role. I don't know how big, you know, all that remains to be seen. But if, if you could go out and you can defend, Tom Izzo is going to find a role for you. He's going to find minutes for you. So how does yeah. that work out you know is is Carson Cooper eating up Jackson Kohler's minutes 
is he taking some away from my, you know, how does that unfold? We'll, we'll see. Yeah. Right. I mean, again, you, the versatility you can see playing lots of roles and it, this team is going to look a lot different in February yeah, than, for than sure. it does now. And, and I think more so than most teams, than most years, I think this team is going to have a lot of, a lot of changes and well, we'll at least know who they are and what they are uh, by then. So I'm actually, I'm super excited about the season. I'm excited to get back to Breslin. The football season has been very disappointing. So it's kind of nice to just change, change gears and move into this. Uh, obviously uh, for those who are the betting types, there's no line on this game. There's no over under. Uh, also, I'd also add that if you are betting Michigan state exhibition games, you're a gambling degenerates. You've got to you need some serious help. There are plenty of NBA games you can bet on. So we'll have, we'll discuss that later on. Is there anything else about this game or matchup that you, that you think we need to discuss? I think we kind of have, have touched on the general sense here. I think you want to see there's certain things I will feel good about seeing from Michigan state. I don't care if they're not hitting threes at a great clip. That's the least of my concerns. Uh, I don't care if they are a little bit loose with the ball at times. That's also not a major concern. If you tell me Michigan state rebounds well defensively that they get productive play. And I don't just mean scoring and rebounding. I mean, productive minutes defensively, you know, doing all those kinds of little things, setting good screens. If they get productive minutes out of the fives, they rebound the ball well defensively. And we see them with the right mindset in terms of running, even if they're not a hundred percent efficient doing. Yeah. I'm just excited to get back there and eat my ice cream sandwich. Uh, and we'll see, uh, this is the last year before the seat reassignment, which I was supposed to happen this year. I'm very disappointed because we have a fan who sits right behind us, who is your classic, not a heckler so much as a, well, he does heckle, uh, but he's, just oftentimes wrong where he talks about how, you know, all the fouls are going the other way, right? Not a, not for Michigan state. You look at the scoreboard and it's like seven to eight <laughs> fouls. And uh, it's just, uh, it's been challenging the last few years. It's <laughs> been behind us. So looking forward to the last year with him and, uh, but looking forward to the season, I think it's gonna be great. Uh, one scheduling note, I think this, the post game announcement will probably come out a day, a little bit later because of, um, scheduling reasons. And in general this season, since I'm attending home games, uh, there'll probably be the, the timing of the, the release of the post game will be just a little bit different and hopefully we'll get it out on time. I'll do my best, but I do have to get all the way back from East Lansing after the games. And so those nine o'clock games will be brutal, but we're going to, we're going to pull it off and we'll, we'll do that anything for our fans here. So I encourage you, if you've not yet visited our website, to go to the final force on the schedule.com or tffinots.com. There you can join for free, either get email updates. You can also go sign up for a forum and interact with other Spartan fans in the community. That's going to start really hopping here. I think the next week or so, as we get close to the official tip on November 7th, but then also just the exhibition game on November 1st, where we get to finally see these players and see what they're like and how they play. Uh, but I guess until next time, final four was not on the schedule. Go green. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.